This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Well, good Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Karen Chatton from Gardnerville, Nevada, and you are listening to Endurance Day on Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for March 11th. This is episode 867. This episode is brought to you by action writer Pat. Good morning, Horse World. When your start time's on Saturday and your finish time's on Sunday... And it doesn't get much better than best conditioned. And completing the challenge is the challenge. You're an endurance rider. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. But don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here on Horses in the Morning. We appreciate you joining us this morning. Welcome back, Karen. Good morning. It's good to be here. Are you adjusted to the time change? Because now you're (laughs) here actually an hour earlier. (laughs) Yes, and I've had, you know, two whole days to get used to it. So I'm just doing fine. You're a horse girl. You're tough. You're an endurance rider. You're extra tough. I know. I know. I, you know, I set three alarms this morning to make sure I got up on time, and only two of them went off because one of the alarms didn't know the correct time. <laughs> That's you can always count on technology to let you down. Always. <laughs> See well, now, okay. um, the, alarm, the alarm told me that the show was starting instead of, oh, it's time to get up. Well, you know, and, and uh, if that was like an endurance day ride, you would have only been an hour late to get started. They don't mind that at all. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, now, yeah, because uh, if you're doing 100, you're up uh, much before this, aren't you? About 4 o'clock? Yes, I just did 100 last month, and I believe we started at 6 in the morning. So I was probably up at... 4.30 or so to get ready, to start getting ready for that. So you get used to tacking up in the dark, don't you? You do. You get used to wearing a headlamp and you know, things like that so that you can see your way around, especially this time of year when the you know, days are, there's not as much light. Now, do you have to uh, do a scorpion snake check, uh, like when you're getting your tack out? <laughs> not usually, No. <laughs> Some of the places you ride, that's what I picture. <laughs> like well, the rattlesnake yeah, curled just, up on top of the saddle. <laughs> oh, gosh. Don't, yeah, don't, now you've probably jinxed somebody. <laughs> Sorry. Let's hope not. <laughs> I think you do. Well, we have a kind of a cool show. What's coming up on today's show, Jennifer? On today's show, we start out with some nutritional tips for endurance riders to help make recovery more comfortable. And after that, we get to know Shannon Whale. I'm going to say it wrong. I'm sorry, Shannon. Wile, thank you. Shannon Wile, who has (laughs) written a book called Striking a Long Trot, 
which is going to be is a fascinating the fascinating story of Linda Tellington Jones. And after a brief song brief song break, we're going to get together with Connie Creech to talk about all of her 100 mile rides. Yeah, she's done a few of them, and you know some other stuff thrown in there as well. Well, you know, we, we kind of have a theme going today, and that's 100-mile rides. And I venture, you know, if we took a look at the whole cross-section of the horse world, how many of us have ever ridden 100 miles in one day? Raise your hand. Yep, that's <laughs> right. It's probably about a tenth of a percent. And uh, Karen is among those uh, tenths of a percent. And you just did another one. Tell us about that one. I did, and I had a great ride. Every, the weather was actually just perfect. And, Where was that? It was in Ridgecrest, California. And some years it can be really windy down there in February when they have this ride. And this year it was just the most perfect, gorgeous blue skies, perfect weather. We had 33 entries on the 100, and I had a really good ride on my horse bow, did super good. We ended up finishing with two other riders. We came in together 7th, 8th, and ninth. So I made it in the top 10, which was really kind of cool. Yay. Yay. So then, but that wasn't really, um, you know, the, the important part of my day was when after I finished at 930 at night, which is really cool because you're thinking, wow, I'm done. I can be in bed. I can get, you know, a good night's sleep before the morning awards. Well, I, when we got back to my trailer and took care of the horse, I realized that my dog was missing. Oh, jeez. The oh, door no. had been left open to the living quarters on the trailer, and I think she tried to follow the crew and got outside of the fairgrounds, which was fenced, and she couldn't find her way back in. Of course, we didn't know that, so we ended up spending nearly all night long searching for her. And I ended up finding her right as the sun was coming up. And oh, my gosh, fine. she did spend all night. <laughs> she was, yeah, I might as well have just been riding all night because it would have been less stressful. <laughs> but <laughs> the dog was fine. She was just stuck outside the fence, and luckily she was fine because, you know, I was so worried because we could hear the coyotes howling out there in the desert, and, and I was really worrying about what might have happened to her. But she was fine. She just got stuck out and wasn't able to figure out how to get back in. So wow, that, what a, what a day. <laughs> well, that's why I decided to come up with my tip for the day to talk about the post-ride recovery, because in this case, it was really important for me. <laughs> because post-ride recovery because I, of sleeping. sleeping. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I know. I just rode the 100, and then now I'm, you know, going all over the place looking for a lost dog. So, so you rode 100, then you walked 100. Yeah, it seemed like it. <laughs> it's like a uh, biathlon. You, you got two, two 100 miles in one day. We could make a score like out it. of that. And I did, Find the dog yeah, after the endurance race. I know. And I didn't get any sleep. And then the award started. So we had the award. And then I drove home for seven hours. So oh, it, was, it was a really long weekend. <laughs> At any point in all of that, did you say, why do I do this? Not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it now. Although, but <laughs> although I did second guess, 
thinking, was it really a good idea to bring the dog? Maybe I should have left her at home. (laughs) But I never um, questioned whether or not, you know, my sanity overriding the 100-mile ride, that was, you know, it was worth it for that (laughs) just because you don't get to do it very often. And when you have such a great ride, you you know, it's one of those great life experiences that you're always going to remember. What was the uh, terrain like in this one? And it's deserty, rolling hills. There are some climbs. Um, there's sand. There's rocks. You know, there's some highway crossings, which are always interesting in the dark because you've got all the semi trucks going by with their headlights showing, and the horses don't always like that. But we got all across everything just fine, and um, it was nice that I was done at 9.30 because then I didn't have to spend as much time in the dark. It's a little harder to, you know, keep up a, a constant trot in the dark on that kind of terrain. You just have to trust that the horse can do it and let him do it. Huh. Yeah, you know, again, an experience that uh, not, not a lot of riders have had is, is uh, you know, riding in the dark like that through places you haven't ridden before. Right. Yeah. It's not an experience so, we've had a lot of that. A, a question for you, um, Karen. Whenever you have rides like this one where, because you you know the trail in that you know that you're going to be crossing an interstate and you know that you're going to be getting there uh-huh. after dark, does that change any of your preparations or your tack or your, or your gear that you use? Well, that's a good question, actually. When I got to the 65-mile point, we had lunch, or I guess you would call it lunch. Actually, it was more like dinner by that point um, in camp. And so what I did there is I put my headlamp on my helmet, and I mainly use – I have a headlamp that does a red light and a white light because the horses don't seem to be quite as bothered by the red light as by the white. And then I also changed Bo's tack over to a glow-in-the-dark tack because he's a dark bay, and in the dark, I mean, he just disappears. You can't see him at all. And so by putting the glow-in-the-dark breast collar and crouper and bridle on him, it makes him a little bit more visible, especially you know, to the other riders out on the trail so they don't just come up and you know, get too close or something. They can see that there's a horse well, I imagine too if if uh, you came unglued and he he you know he was out there by himself, it's easier for you to find him too. It would be he could have ran off with my dog and they could have been together. Could have had a party together, sure. Now you're putting a blinky light on your dog too, aren't you? <laughs> I I actually thought of that actually. Yes. <laughs> you know she's got her phone number embroidered on her collar. It, it just, it was too bad. I couldn't have just called her and said, hey, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go right into, while we're talking about it, let's go right into your endurance tip for, the, for this month, because it is about post-ride recovery for, for endurance riders. And, you know, we're, here we're talking about some of the longer rides, but I guess it's relevant for some of the shorter rides, too. So, so tell us about it. It is. Well, post-ride recovery for endurance riders is not usually a topic that most of us think about. Usually after the ride is over, you just want to sit down and relax. Studies have shown that an endurance athlete can significantly reduce the time required for post-ride recovery by paying close attention to nutritional intake after a ride. 
What you do leading up to and during a ride is also important. The main source of energy used while riding long distances on a horse are carbohydrates that are stored as glycogen in both the liver and muscles. Our bodies can only store a limited amount of carbohydrates as glycogen, forcing us to eat during our rides to avoid glycogen depletion. At the end of a long or hard ride, there is a fair chance your muscle glycogen levels will be very low, especially if you're searching for a dog for six more hours. (laughs) (laughs) It has been shown that the glycogen repletion window exists for up to four hours immediately after exercise. During this period, the body is able to process and replace glycogen at a much faster rate, up to three times as fast. For the endurance rider, this means that by eating the right types of food as soon as you are finished riding, you can significantly increase the time required by your body to fully recover. This can have a major impact on performance over a multi-day event or post-ride recovery after a 100-mile ride. It is often recommended that around 3 grams of carbohydrates to 2.2 pounds of body weight should be consumed during this repletion window. So if you weigh 150 pounds, you need roughly 205 grams of carbs. And high-carbohydrate foods include beans, such as chickpeas, white beans, black-eyed peas, refried beans, garbanzo beans, and navy beans. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Wait a minute. The Uh last thing I feel like eating is a lot of beans (laughs) when I get done with a 100-mile ride. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. But also root vegetables like potatoes, sweet potatoes, carrots, and corn contain a high quantity of carbohydrates. All right. Well, that's better. That's better. And actually... Yeah, a nice yeah. salty potato, uh, you'd be surprised how good that can be. <laughs> you know something? I knew it. All these years, all of us eventers uh, gorge on French fries after our event is over, and there's a scientific basis for it. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Salty potatoes. There, there is. Fries. That gives me my excuse to stop at McDonald's and get some nice salty fries on the trip home, you know, for breakfast. Every time. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Well, you know, and it, you guys also have to think about, you know, you have to cook the stuff out in camp. So, I mean, you're a little bit limited, too. Yes, you kind of have to be, you know, put a little bit of planning into it and have these things available. And you need to kind of select um, some different choices based on what you might feel like when you're finished. You know, it might sound for the ride, but like you said, when you're done, you're like, ew, I don't want that. But maybe there's something else that you will like. That's why it's good to have an assortment of stuff. And so who feels like cooking things, after riding for 100 miles? <laughs> I know, I know. It, it can be tough. Sometimes you're just so tired, you just want to crawl into bed. Yeah. But if, but if you try to replenish yourself, then you will feel better when it, comes time to get back up, especially if you're going to have a drive home, then, you know, you're going to, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to be really tired and sore by the time you get home. Okay, so some of the dairy products, such as non-fat milk, uh, low-fat, plain yogurt, chocolate milk, and skim milk are also included in the list of high-carbohydrate foods. Oh, you're going to like this one. All types of chocolates. Candies, cookies, and pastries also contain high amounts of carbohydrates. Oh, there you go. You just get out the bag of Oreos and you eat the whole yeah, most thing. Most of when us you're can done. manage that. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, that's you know that's the thing with endurance riders. We're really just junk food addicts. <laughs> 
I can see, you know, Chips Ahoy, you eat the whole bag, which is not hard to do, you know, on a, on a normal day, but you just got done with a 100-mile ride. So you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, the calories don't count because I just got done with a 100-mile ride, so I can eat the whole bag of chocolate chip cookies. You kind of and can, And it's good yeah. for you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah. foods containing cool. simple carbs include table sugar, candy, cake, corn syrup, fruit juice, bread, and pasta made from white flour and most packaged cereals. Foods containing their high amounts of complex carbs are bran, oatmeal, maize, barley, buckwheat, cornmeal, pasta, macaroni, spaghetti, potatoes, brown rice, shredded wheat, bagels, whole grain cereals, corn peas, uh, yams, beans, lentils. Oh, screw all that stuff. (laughs) Just have the cookies and the cake. Yeah, the cookies and the cake (laughs) and the chocolate. Yeah, exactly. Cares about cooking up rice uh when you're done. (laughs) I know. So a small amount of protein consumed at the post-ride stage can also give your body a head start on repairing the muscles that have been damaged during the exercise period. There are now a large number of specific recovery drinks on the market with differing levels of carbohydrates, protein, and electrolytes. A simpler, cheaper, and often tastier method is to consume chocolate milk straight after a ride. Chocolate milk has been found to contain the right amount of carbohydrates and protein and has the benefit of being available at many grocery stores, grocery stores and is inexpensive. Well, you know, that's interesting because, uh, you know, who doesn't like chocolate milk? That's a, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. It is. It's both. It's candy and good for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's a well-rounded food product. Now, yeah, well, go ahead and finish, and then I'll, I have some questions. Okay. Now, assuming you've taken advantage of the glycogen repletion window as soon as you've stopped riding, it won't be long before you are ready for some more serious food. Fatty foods should be avoided, and in a similar proportion of carbohydrates to protein should be consumed along with fruit and vegetables to replace any vitamins and minerals lost via sweat. A great meal would be something like chicken breast or with steamed vegetables and brown rice. Try to make sure your carbohydrates are com- complex carbs, such as brown rice or whole meal bread, as opposed to sugary carbs that tend to give a shorter energy spike and are harder for the body to turn into glycogen. Beware of overeating and not drinking enough fluids. One common mistake is to overeat after a ride. That means not the whole bag of cookies, Glenn. Ah. <laughs> I know. Often you will finish your ride feeling starved and eat and eat as you feel really depleted. Keep in mind that you may have loaded with carbohydrates before your ride and during and may have been topping off with very high-carb energy bars or drinks while you were riding. And water is a huge part of recovery and is at least as important as the food you eat. Water replenishes lost fluids without which your muscles cramp and will continue to cramp until you top off. Perhaps the single biggest mistake many riders make is the failure to replace the fluid losses associated with exercise. Rapid skin evaporation decreases the sense of perspiring. Of course, you still smell. And gives a false sense of minimal <laughs> fluid loss. <laughs> but just because you can't see the sweat doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> okay. Uh, for a successful ride, it is essential that you start off adequately hydrated and that fluid replacement begins early and is continued on a regular basis. Start drinking before your ride and drink at least one 16-ounce bottle per hour during the ride and drink afterwards to avoid dehydration. Eating and drinking every hour of the ride is important to avoid energy loss and keeps recovery to a minimum. Keep your body fueled at all times or risk running out of gas. 
When you bonk hard, it takes a long time to get back to normal, as much as two weeks. Keep up during the ride with whatever foods you like, energy bars, drinks, fruit, or bagels. I like goo, fruit, like bananas and oranges, nuts, potato chips, that um, cures the salt cravings. Krish. For meals during the ride, I like tuna or egg salad sandwiches, peanut butter or boiled potatoes, and chicken breast. Also, make sure you get plenty of rest and sleep. The body does most of its muscle repair when you're sleeping. So I find that if I put more energy into taking care of myself, the rider, that I can then in turn stay more focused and attentive to my horse during a ride. If I can't take care of myself, then I won't do a very good job of the same when the horse, where the horse is concerned. And I'm sure this takes a while to get used to, too, because people are nervous, you're excited, and, and you know, like for any competition. And one of the things that you don't want to do when you're nervous and excited is eat. So it's, it's something that all right. athletes have to, have to battle with because it's something that they, they easily can put off thinking, I'll, I'll get to that later. And in this case, because it's so prolonged an event, later really is too late. It is. And it takes some time and practice to learn what you like and what you want to eat. You know, there's certain times at, at different points during a 100-mile ride where something you always like to eat just turns your stomach and you can't even stand the thought of it. And then other times mm-hmm. you'll eat something that normally you never would eat. <laughs> right. Now, so what do you do? So you're, you're on a 100-mile ride. You have, what, four breaks in a 100-mile ride? Three or four? It depends. Uh, at least, yeah, usually at least that many. We, I think on this one we had two 20-minute holds and two hour holds and then one additional vet check that didn't have a hold, but we stayed for a, a little bit to let the horse eat. So you is that at the point where where your support team is, has food available for you and has a variety? So whatever you're in the mood for, as you said, you might not be in the mood for an egg salad sandwich when you get to a certain point. Exactly, and they usually will ask you what you feel like, or else they'll just shove food in your face and say, "Here, eat this." <laughs> and it, that would be me. Yeah. That's, that's what they need. They just you just need somebody that that knows you well enough to say, "Here, you know." eat this or drink this and they'll check your water bottles for you and, and then uh, scold you if you're not drinking enough. You know that drink, Jennifer would have a trouble with that because she, she doesn't like to drink a whole lot of water anyway. I, I drink a lot of water but drinking uh-huh. a 16 ounce bottle of water per hour is a lot of water for most people and I imagine that's got to be one of the tougher things people have to get used to because a lot of people that just don't do it. Right and it's it's tough, and you know one good rule of thumb to follow is that you need to be peeing at least as often as your horse does. <laughs> well, and if you're if you're not, you got to work on that. Yep. And as I'm getting older, that would be about every 45 minutes all day long. So, <laughs> so I'd be adding two minutes every hour all day long. I'd be the last one coming in. This is why I can't do endurance. There you go. Yes, it can be tough when you've got to get on and off all the time to do it. <laughs> and the porta potties there just aren't enough of them. So, uh, no. Well, that's the good no. part about being out in the desert, and there's a lot of bushes. <laughs> oh, <that's> good. <laughs> 
You know, those are little things you don't think about when you're, uh, you know, like when we talked about yesterday, Jennifer, on the show, which had never come up before in the history of any of our shows on the Horse Radio Network about not looking in the porta potty uh, because it just ruins your day. And now we're talking about peeing in the desert. You can't get this on any other morning show. (laughs) So now tell me, what do you do? What do you mostly do food-wise? Um, well, I, I do the goose, which it, it's like a little packet of energy, and I like them because you can just squirt them in your mouth and swallow it and follow it down with a nice big drink of water or uh, whatever your electrolyte drink might be, and those seem to go down well. I, I kind of try to do at least one of those between every vet check. That kind of keeps my energy level up, and then... You know, if if it feels right, I'll do the egg salad. Um, you know, you got to keep it cool somehow, though. You don't want it sitting out there all day in the heat. So um, stuff like that and fruit. Fruit is always. Good. I had never, by oh. the way, heard of goo. I'm just looking it up, and I had never heard of it before. And it's oh, so okay. it's like a gel kind of stuff. Yes, substance. and they and yeah. other companies make different. There's Cliff Shots and several different types that, you know, stores like REI or some of the camping places or, or um, sporting goods stores probably would have stuff like that. Huh. And, uh, watermelon is always good, especially in the summer. Um, and I also like nuts, um, potato chips. One of the things I, I eat at a ride that I won't eat anywhere else is a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding me. You know, well, you know, the hot dogs are one of those things that you have to eat out. You can't eating them at home is just not as fun as when you get them out, right? I mean, that's it's, a thing. It's, that's true. And you know what else is always good is when somebody else makes a sandwich for you. It could be the same ingredients, but it's always better when someone else makes it. Have you noticed that's that? Right. For some, <laughs> yes, for some reason, peanut butter and jelly is always better when somebody else makes it. Now, you got to, but the, see, the problem with that is, though, Karen, then you get into the technicalities of how much peanut butter and how much jelly, because everybody's ratio is different. So maybe peanut butter and uh-huh. jelly is one of those exceptions where you want to make your own, because you got to get your ratio right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and when you're on 100, you've got to make all of this stuff usually ahead of time and have it all ready and, you know, kind of set up for what's going to which checks and when and Things like which that. means you're so doing that the day before, which means these things are sitting around for a day before you ever eat them. They can be, yes. That's why it's yeah. nice, you know, if you do have a crew that can go and, and keep making your sandwiches and get your food together for you during the course of the ride so that, like you said, it's not sitting out or already made for a whole day. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I want a well, fresh peanut butter and jelly sandwich dag on it. Well, you know what? Yeah, no, what works? Soggy. What works good to carry? Like, if you're going to carry it with you, is to use a bagel for your bread because bagels are a little tougher and they resist getting squished quite so bad compared to regular sandwich bread. So I'll mm. do. Um, you could just do all sorts of stuff on a bagel. You can put peanut butter on it or ham and cheese if you like, or egg salad, and it's. Uh, a, a little bit more durable. Well, and it's high, much higher, you know, bagel, 600 calories. So it's much higher in calories and, and carbs 
uh, for you as well. Uh-huh. So in, in this case, it's actually better for you. Well, that's interesting. It's something you don't think about. We don't think about unless you've done this before. You don't think about taking care of yourself. All of us always think about taking care of our horses and then put ourselves mm-hmm. second. But you're right. We can't do right by our horses if you're if you're dragging at about uh, 50 miles. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect sense. And, and right. And if you're not, you know, if you're not really keeping up with taking care of yourself, you run the risk of also, you know, not being able to follow the trail and getting lost. And that'll be another hundred miles just getting back. So, <laughs> you might find a dog along the way. If you do, bring it back to Karen because <laughs> you might. Yes. <laughs> well, now before we get to your first guest here, I wanted to talk to you about something that's very exciting that I didn't know anything about, and that is you have your first book almost ready. Tell us about that. It is. It's being edited right now, and it's called Re-Expressed. Modern Day Adventures on the Pony Express Trail. It's going to be an ebook available um, on Amazon, and it's going to cover my uh, daily my preparations, my daily journal, and what I learned when I did the 2,000 mile cross country Pony Express ride in 2001. I didn't know you did that. See, I didn't know any of this stuff. Oh, How good. Cool okay. It's uh, it was quite an adventure. I learned a lot. Got to see, you know, the best parts of the country by horseback and had, you know, just a a life-altering experience. I think a lot of us that went on that trip were changed in a lot of different ways, and we learned a lot about uh, relationships and uh, especially a lot about horsemanship and taking care of our horses. You know, that's a a popular thing, still goes on today, and we interviewed, remember, Jennifer, we interviewed the guy from that one uh, general store or wherever, where it starts? Uh, Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, a long time ago, and, uh, you know, it's fascinating, fascinating thing, but I guess people can still do that ride today. Where was it? Where was that ride? It was the one. It's the one that goes from I don't know the Midwest someplace out to California, right? Well, the Pony Express Trail starts in St. Joseph, Missouri, and we finished in Virginia City, mainly because from there over through California, everything's now paved, um, uh, and it's all populated. So it, it's not a real safe, you know, to take horses all yeah. you know all the way into Sacramento anymore. So we just. Uh, finished in Virginia City, Nevada, and that was a pretty cool place to finish. How many days did it take? Uh, Forty days of riding fifty miles a day. Whoa! And then, and then we would have uh, weekends off. Sometimes it was two days, or sometimes it might be one day off. So the whole thing took us eight full weeks. And now you actually was, do carry mail too, don't you? Isn't that what I remember? Um, some of us did. We bought postcards and stuff in St. Joseph and put them in our saddle packs and carried them the whole way with yeah. us. I know and, that uh, uh, it was a thing, too, when we did that interview a year or two ago. You could, you could actually get your letter carried on, on the Pony Express ride. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's something you could arrange ahead of time with the little store or whatever there. Uh, interesting. Well, if you want to yeah. hear more about that, then we're going to have to read your book. 
You will, yes. Re-Express, we'll fully modern the end of the adventures month. of the Pony Express Trail. And so when, when yes. can we get it? By the end of the month. Okay. So, and it'll be on so Amazon? Yeah, yeah. It's kind Very of Very good. Well, I'm excited to read that one. That'll be great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, full of lots of stuff, you, you know, that every day I force myself to write a journal, which wasn't easy because a lot of the days we were getting three or four hours of sleep at night. Uh, it was so hot and humid the first, you know, two or three weeks of the ride, you just couldn't sleep. It, it, and then there were bugs, bugs that are so big, they're like rodents, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my, my horses out west are so spoiled they told you know we went east to missouri they had no idea that things like that even existed <laughs> come to florida we'll show you some <laughs> we'll show i know i know <laughs> all right we have our first guest coming up here in a minute but first i have to talk to you about action rider tack they wanted to let you know about the product that they're highlighting this month, and that is the Back on Track Quick Wraps. Of course, Back on Track is a regular sponsor here of Horses in the Morning, usually on Wednesdays. Back on Track Quick Leg Wraps are cotton polyester blend material of the state-of-the-art Welltex fabric infused with ceramic powder. The ceramic reflects your horse's natural body warmth and creates a soothing infrared thermal warmth. Warmth therapy is recognized a method used to relieve, heal, and in, it's used to relieve and heal injured muscles, joints, and tendons. When you wrap your horse's legs with these wraps, back on tracks, unique ceramic-infused fabric creates gentle warmth, which may help decrease swelling or soften or completely reduce wind puffs without the use of liniment or poultice. Use after a strenuous ride and leave them on overnight. You can also use them when you ship your horse. These leg wraps are ideal for injury recovery or prevention. Some people ship uh, with the, the wraps on the entire time to help prevent stocking up and things like that. For, those, uh, for these and all the other products, visit actionridertack.com or search for them on Facebook. The best source for endurance and trail products is actionridertack.com, and you can get a lot of the different back-on-track products right there from them. All right, tell us about our first guest. Okay, our first guest is Shannon Weil. She lives in California. She is the author of Strike a Long Trot, which chronicles the distinguished early equestrian career of Linda Tellington Jones. In 1969, Shannon completed, competed in the Tevis Cup and developed an allegiance to endurance riding and later ultra running. In 1977, Shannon became a co-founder of the world-renowned Western States 100-mile endurance run and served as a trustee for over 30 years. So here is our interview with Shannon. Good morning, Shannon. Thank you for joining us today on Horses in the Morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, this morning we're going to talk to you about a little bit of history on endurance riding and your book, Strike a Long Trot, about Linda Tellington-Jones. So give us a little okay. bit of an overview about your book. Okay. Uh, the book starts uh, with, it covers 40 years of Linda's life in, uh, when she starts out as a horsewoman. And the reason, she asked me to write this book because I was a student at her school of horsemanship, the Pacific Coast Equestrian Research Farm and School of Horsemanship. I was a student there in 1967. And so, I, as I say in, in the book, 
uh, the day that she enrolled me into the horsemanship program, little did I realize that she was also enrolling me into the rest of her life. <laughs> and so uh, much of uh, the adventures that um, we did together th- with the school and um, after I left the school are included in this book. But um, the main focus of the book is, well, it, there's many focuses, but a lot of it is about the fact that she was a pioneer in the sport of endurance riding. And because her husband, Wentworth Tellington, was a, um, he was a professor at West Point and uh, mm. was engulfed in the, um, the U.S. cavalry methodology of horsemanship, uh, that's what they taught at their school of horsemanship. So if you look back at the origins of the sport of endurance riding, you'll notice that a lot of people that came to it back in the 50s and 60s had roots somehow in the U.S. cavalry, such mm-hmm. as Dr. Barcelo, whose father was an officer, uh, Betty Veal, whose father was in the in, uh, Army, and so she was around all those cavalry stables, and, a lot of, and went with Pillington, of course. And so a lot of people that um, resonated with what, Wendell Roby was doing with the Tevis Cup ride just fell right into that because, of course, the cavalry was about riding long distances at a fast pace over rough terrain. Mm-hmm. So uh, what could be more fitting? You know, it's a natural segue. Right. And it, um, from what I read it, it, um, in the information on the book, it shows that you also have ridden the Tevis Cup. Yes, I have. Uh, I rode the Tevis Cup the first time in 1969. Wow. And I didn't finish. Uh, I was introduced to endurance riding through the Tellingtons at the school. Linda had the first buckle I'd ever seen, and I just immediately said, I want one of those. (laughs) But uh, then I realized how much work went into getting it. But um, I've ridden the Tevis Cup ride four times and have finished twice. But um, I had the the honor and privilege of working with Wendell Roby for mm-hmm. um, many years. So um, I was I was blessed by that to have him in my life. And uh, I worked in Auburn at the Hart Federal Savings, where the Western States Trail Foundation was located. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a great time. Hal Hall, Kathy Perry, many many. Uh, endurance riders worked there at the same time. So it was the epicenter of the sport. And mm-hmm. um, it was it was a thriving time and a very creative time in the sport. So that was pretty exciting. And I see that you also were involved with Ulta running and um, helped get the Western State 100-mile endurance run started? Yes. Yes, well, uh, at the time, let's see, I rode the Tevis Cup ride in 1977, a year after we did the first Pony Express ride. And uh, that year, there were 13 runners with the Tevis Cup ride horses. And as I was going through Volcano Canyon, I was right there with Andy Gonzalez, who won the race that year. 
And I said, this run is going to be a hit, and I'm going to make sure it is. And so Mm -hmm. I became, I joined up with Mo Livermore and uh, Phil Gardner and Mo Livermore and Kurt Sproul, and I became the the facilitating force that created an infrastructure for the race. Of course, Gordy Ainsley rode it the first time, or ran it the first time, but we actually made an event out of it. Wow. So um, I was I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's a great accomplishment. Well, let's back up. You mentioned the 1976 Pony Express ride. Tell us about your involvement with that. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. I had um, I, I left endurance riding and, and got involved with thoroughbred racing for seven years. And then I came back and wanted to go back to endurance riding. So I uh, joined Saddle, you know, I joined AERC, which was brand new, and I got Saddle Action Magazine. And in the back, there was an ad that said, Wanted crew member for Great American Horse Race, <laughs> all expenses paid, and 10% of the purse. And so I dashed off this very colorful letter and saying, Pick me. And it turned out it was Phil Gardner's ad who I already knew because Mm -hmm. he was an endurance writer at the Tellington's Research Farm. And so we went, we launched off on this wonderful adventure on the Great American Horse Race. And, of course, Linda Tellington was there, too. And, uh, uh, you know, along about Kansas City, there was a big blow-up. And and so about 20 of us, led by Dave Nicholson, Dr veterinarian Dave Nicholson and Linda Tellington rallied together and said we got to go do something else and so we went north to St. Joe Missouri and uh, reformed regrouped and headed out on the Pony Express Trail and that's when life turned into just this incredible bowl of cherries (laughs) and uh, we had such a marvelous time on that adventure and uh, I have another book that's very close to being produced on that, but it's not done yet. But anyway, um, Lori Stewart was with us, and she, um, while we were in St. Joe, she dashed off to Nebraska and picked up two horses out of the pasture from uh, Jean and Jean Fells, um, the Fellses. They were um, Rush Creek breeding. Okay. Mares. Uh, and, uh, well, actually, the horses she brought were geldings, but they had some Rush Creek spinoffs. So she came back to St. Joe with these two overweight, out of shape <laughs> horses, and she got on them and walked every single day, walked the entire trail uh-huh. every day, every how, day. How and far were you eyes, each day? You know, a lot, um, we were probably going like 30 miles a day. Mm -hmm. And um, we watched those horses get into shape. Yeah, it is. But we -hmm. we watched those horses transform right in front of our eyes. So uh, I gained a a lot of respect for Lori Stewart on that, uh, for how she handled that. And, of course, her experience came from a pack station, uh, years working at a pack station where that's all you did was walk. So that's what she applied to the Pony Express ride. And she ended up winning. So uh, we were very proud of her for that. Wow. But um, 
we did uh, stop along the way, and and we uh, Linda joined us here and there on weekends. She would fly in on the a long weekend from uh, she'd come in from San Francisco because that summer she was uh, also taking her fourth year with uh, Moshe Feldenkrais, uh, the, you know, who did the um, non habitual movement um, to recover, restore bodies. So. Uh, Linda was doing two great things at the same time during that summer. Um, wow. So she would she would uh, show up, rent a car, drive into camp, and she would drive in in like a red convertible, you know, with <laughs> fresh fruit for everybody out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and it was uh, pretty dashing <laughs> to see this, but... Um, we just had great times seeing the uh, the ruts of the wagon trains and the mm-hmm. um, the various uh, farms along the way, and you know watching the terrain literally transform as we cross the country. I mean, Karen, you know this because you've been across mm-hmm. that trail many times too. But it, it just was an amazing experience to be completely wet every day in Nebraska, and then by the time you got to Nevada, you were just, you know, getting bathed in dust sandstorms every day, and uh, mm-hmm. so it was, it was a pretty spectacular experience, and the uh, weather, you know, the weather, the, the clouds, God, the clouds formations were just sensational every day. There was something that was just absolutely stunning. Right, yeah, the sun but it was and hard. sunrises are yeah. incredible out yeah. there, aren't they? Yeah, and, you know, you think, oh, how how ordinary. No, there's nothing ordinary about spectacular nature showing off, you know. Well, how did your writer end up doing? Did Phil Gardner, he, huh? he, I think he came in like sixth or something like that. We had two Lanigan Arabians with us, which were the funnest horses on earth. And, uh, you know, we, we would set up camp. I, in fact, I still have, sitting out in my yard, I still have the horse trailer that we took on that summer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's my favorite souvenir, you know. Yeah, but um, our, our horses were small, and they were very handy. And so we could just set up camp and kind of turn them loose, you know, and, and they would, um, just stay, stay with us. They wanted to be with us as much as we wanted to be with them. And prior to our departure, planning stages, Phil Gardner went to see Betty Veal, who was the, um, the ride secretary for the Tevis Cup ride for 50 years. Uh And Betty had these corkscrew posts it had a, like a screw, like a corkscrew that for a wine bottle opener. Mm-hmm. It had a corkscrew that went into the ground, and then it had on top it had like three loops in the in the metal posts, and they were surplus from the U.S. cavalry because that's how they would create their corrals when oh, they were okay. out and about. So Betty gave us four of those, and. Then we had two very long cotton, like one-inch cotton ropes. And 
so my job every day was to get to our next destination and set up camp. So, you know, I did soil sampling all the way across the country by screwing <laughs> these corks <laughs> into the ground. And, and, and so we just um, put four around the back end of the horse trailer and then strung these ropes through and created this instant corral. This is long before the marvelous uh, little panel corrals were even mm-hmm. thought of uh, that are used today. And so, and um, us, where did the ride end up finishing? In Sacramento, in okay, Old so Town, Sacramento, at the Hastings Building. Okay, so you rode from St. Joseph, Missouri, basically across the whole Pony Express Trail to Sacramento. Yep, yeah, 1,960 miles. And how long did that take? Two months. <laughs> now that's a race. Wow. Two months. Yeah. Yeah, we were um, we were on the road for four months altogether when we left uh-huh. uh, in May to go to New York to start the Pony or the uh, Great American Horse Race, and then you know we fumbled around with them for a couple of months, and then uh, we spun off, and then spent the last two months with uh, in, in our own world on the Pony Express Trail, and uh-huh. you know I must admit. The um, nobody knew where we were going. Dave Nicholson didn't know where we were going. He just was an enthusiast of the history of the Pony Express Trail, uh-huh. and so he had um, he had that marvelous book by Richard Burton called *A City of Saints*, and that was our guide. And wow. it was a um, here it is right here. I'm a book hound. Um, it was written by Richard Burton in the 1800s, and it was his notes. The section that we used was his notes, his his detail of following pretty much the Oregon Trail and the uh, Pony Express Trail in a stagecoach. So we just went for, and he, he noted landmarks, you know, uh, physical geographic landmarks Uh and so that's primarily what we followed and uh at that time there were still some there were already some trail markers because other enthusiasts had gone out and um uh put up really nice signs every state Uh except california had really nice uh trail markers and then we would go from station to station and see ruins and and uh, just, you know, absorb this. It wow, was what, amazing. What an experience. Yeah. I think some, some of the places were so uh, soulful. They were so powerful that mm-hmm. I remember standing in some of the ruts and right. I closed my eyes and I could literally hear the sounds of the the wagons creaking and the mm-hmm. the oxen and the children crying and the pots and pans wow. crashing together. I could just I could hear it. I just mm-hmm. picked that up. It was so you know when you're moved by that sort of a, a impact by that sort of an experience. You know you're just following the footsteps of these people all the way across the country, and you know mm-hmm. that every single day. Your job is hard. 
your right. daily tasks are hard. And you think about what these people were doing a hundred years ago, the exactly. pioneers crossing mm-hmm. the the country. Whew, it was just amazing. It was really tough for them, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, well, well let's so get, I get back a little bit to talking about Linda again and um tell us about as she continued through her career with horses, how she came to um end up working on her T-Touch methods? Well, uh, uh, this book, I call this, uh, the Strike Along Trial, I call this the compost pile of where the T-Touch sprouted out of. And um, it was uh, that she worked with Moshe and Christ. And when she was working with him, she just had this, Bing, this idea that mm-hmm. if non-habitual movement could help a human body, why couldn't it help a horse? And so she started taking what she was learning from Feldenkrais and transferring it to the horses. And one day she was working on a horse that was having some problems, and she said she just started she put her hand on the horse and she just started moving it in a circular motion randomly around the horse's back. And she started seeing results immediately. Mm -hmm. And of course the the basic T-touch is a circle and a quarter with a very relaxed kind of a a clouded, you know, if you relax your hand and it sort of forms a a round half crescent shape. Mm -hmm. And apply it. In other words, you don't want stiff fingers. You want very relaxed fingers. And so if you look at the face of a clock and you start at 6 and move your fingers up to 9 to 12, around to 3, back to 6, and then up to 9. So that's a circle and a quarter. So if Mm -hmm. you start doing that, a circle and a quarter, randomly, a body, anything that breathes, it works on, um, you just it, it works on a cellular level, and it actually brings change to that area. And it's scientifically proven at this point. She's, she's had a lot of people, really, uh, universities and, and uh-huh. a lot of scientific studies done on her work, and it's proven to make a uh, vast difference in, in the physical aspects of a, of a body. And um, so another thing that she did was, uh, along with her partner at the time, Roger Russell, uh, they developed a uh, maze, not a maze, a labyrinth for the horses. So a very simple labyrinth that they can go through that makes them think, because Linda Mm -hmm. was always about making the horse think. That's the reason why she never used a round pin. She, mm-hmm. she says the horse can't think when it ha- has to go around and around. If there are corners to deal with, then a horse has to think. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, she, she was always interested in engaging the brain with the behavior and, and the body. So, um, uh, which to me, just it reduces down to one word, and that's respect for the animal, respecting mm-hmm. the fact that they can 
you know, and that they they can be in control and in charge of their own uh, decisions. So, right. um, so she's done a lot with that, and um, so by the time she uh, went finished closed closed the school of horsemanship, and uh, uh, during that time, while she during the course of her life, she was. Um, sort of scooped up by this incredible woman by the name of Countess uh, Margaret Bessinger, who was a Hungarian countess, and she uh, left, She fled Hungary after World War II. And, of course, the Hungarians are known for their magnificent horses. Mm-hmm. And she was, and they, were, they, they bred the best war horses in Europe during, you know, for hundreds of years. And um, so Kenneth Bessinger finally arrived in um, America after the war, and her extremely wealthy grandfather left a um, large sum of money for her in a huge 22,000-acre ranch up in Montana where she wanted to raise these horses. So she needed someone to train them. And there was another countess that's included in the book that mm-hmm. um, also fled Hungary, and she wanted to. She was the queen of uh, show jumping in Europe during. This is in the um, in the 1920s. So um, when they arrived in the United States, Countess Gerke in Virginia said, "I'll I'll promote the show horse, the jumping horses," but Countess. Bessinger wanted to promote the endurance horses. They wanted to uh, promote these horses for long-distance riding. And so she called the Tellingtons because she had seen how well Linda had done on the Jim Shoulders 100-mile ride with Bink Galitta, the the mayor Bink Galitta. And um, so Linda was sent these magnificent Hungarian horses. And she use them in three-day eventing and steeplechase racing and endurance riding. She topped wow. 10 on the Tevis Cup on a Hungarian stallion in 1968. And um, that that was, to me, in, in the book, Strike Along Trot, to me this is one of the most compelling and, and uh, compassionate stories uh, chapters of the book because it's uh, – you know, here, here Linda is literally taken under the wing like a little niece by these wealthy, wealthy countesses, and because she was doing so well showing their horses, she just had everything. She had, she was one of the top paid trainers in the country for several years, and but Linda wanted more. She wanted to expand her mine in her life because she'd been training horses for so long well shannon she wanted more we're just about out of time so for those listeners that want to learn more about linda please uh, check out strike a long trot and uh, go ahead shannon and give us your website address my website is turtlerockpress.com and the book is also available on amazon.com in uh hardcover Paperback and ebook. It's on an ebook. Ooh, that's cool. 
I know, yeah. terrific. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sorry we didn't have more time. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. It's a big story, so I can certainly understand. So thank <laughs> you very much. I appreciate talking to you both as well. What is this love that runs so deep? We try to be the best that we can be for them with every stride and every move. It's up to us to prove it is a dance between Thank you. 
Well, that's When You Carry Me by Marianne Kennedy. You can find all of her music at MarianneKennedy.com. You're listening to Horses in the Morning. I am Glenn the Geek here, and I am with Karen Chatton. Today we're talking endurance. It's our once-a-month look at the sport of endurance. Coach Jen is in the producer chair, and we are brought to you today by Action Rider Tech. You can find all of their terrific products, endurance and otherwise, at actionridertech.com. Tomorrow on the EquityMFT.com Celebrity Trivia Challenge, we have a jockey Frankie Lovato will be with us. He'll be our celebrity playing for his charity, and then we'll have one of our great listeners playing against Frankie. So be sure to tune in tomorrow morning for the Celebrity Trivia Challenge and lots of other fun. Jamie will be back as well for tomorrow. Well, uh, Karen, we are going to be getting right to our next guest to tell us about her. Terrific. Well, our next guest is Connie Creech. Connie has ridden more than 28,000 miles, and what's most impressive about that is that she has completed 73 one-day, 100-mile rides. Whoa. I know. That's uh, (laughs) amazing. It really is. She's also a ride manager. She serves on the Western States Board of Governors and is also very active in the NASTAR Club, the Nevada All-State Trail Riders. Very good. Let's see if we can get her on here. Good morning, Connie. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Nice to be here. Well, we're talking with Connie this morning about her 100-mile ride adventures. So, Connie, tell us about the first 100 you did. Um, My very first 100 um, was in 1974 on the Virginia City 100, and I actually didn't finish. so I was pulled at 30 miles for lameness. And, but I did go back the following year in 1975 and finished with a ride time of 19 hours and 53 minutes. So it was, um, it was a great ride. I'm glad to finish. And how old were you then? I was 17 when I finished wow. in, in 75. So wow. um, That was quite a ride to start with. Yeah, it was. I had done like 250s before that. So uh-huh. we started right out doing the long distances, and I think it was basically where I started from where there was just a big group of uh, individual uh, endurance riders just taking off with the sport. So I was fortunate to, to be in the area at the right. time. Do you have a favorite ride or one that stands out as being the most memorable? Uh, you know, um, my most favorite 100-mile ride was the Swamp Pacific 100, mm-hmm. and that was uh, in the northern, uh, on the northern coast of California in the redwood trees. It was awesome, and they no longer hold that ride anymore. But um, I think my most mem- memorable, memorable ride um, was the World Championship in 1988 in Front Royal, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate to finish in 15th place and, and help the uh, U.S. team win the gold medal. So wow. that was probably my most memorable ride. And then I also had a, a great ride in Stockholm, Sweden, with my mayor, L.S. Shireen. And uh, we were also riding for the U.S. team there, and we finished in eighth place. So I was very fortunate to have those two great rides and a really super horse at the time. That's great. What was so, the funniest thing or that you think or the funnest thing possibly that ever happened to you on 100? <laughs> well, um, I, you know, most of the things on the 100 
on the hundreds, they just, uh, they just, you have to deal with them, you know, as they happen. And, um, most of the time they're not really funny, <laughs> but, <laughs> not but I do, I, I do remember one, one thing that was really funny to the people around me, but not so much to myself. Um, it was on the Virginia city hundred again, and we were at our last vet check and I was vetting my horse through and she reached down behind me and was started to rub on, on my backside and her bridle got caught on my riding tights and she ripped the whole back side of my riding tights. So I was kind of exposed and um, <laughs> thankfully the vet there was Kevin Lazarchef and he ended up giving me a pair of his uh, scrub bottoms to, oh to wear into the finish line. So that was probably the funniest thing that I can remember happening. Uh, Okay, so how did you even get started writing hundreds? What inspired you to even give that first one a try? You know, I uh, probably uh, my brother-in-law Louis Henderson. Uh, he's the one that that started me in endurance, and and uh, he he gave me a a five-year-old Arab gilding for a Christmas present, and. Um, and so I, you know, everybody around us were was doing that Virginia City Hundred, and I think you know just the great riders back then, Donna Fitzgerald and Becky Hart, and those great horses that that just went out there and did it and were so successful. It just really inspired me. What keeps drawing you to to continually doing as many hundreds as you as you have done? Uh, you know, uh, I I think it's just probably the physical and mental challenge that you know that that's just a test for both you and your horse that keeps me out there and it's it's just a magical experience out there you know riding under the de- uh moonlight in the desert in the stars it's it's just like nothing else out there and you know there's there's just the camaraderie with the other riders and and just the bond that you build up with your horse and the trust that you you get from each other it's there's just nothing like it well how do you handle riding in the dark uh you know in the dark um when i first started i we just rode in the dark because there was no such thing as glow sticks or anything and you just rode in the dark and Uh and and uh you were lucky if you had a moon and and the stars that on those occasions that there wasn't moonlight you just rode in the dark, you know, and you couldn't see anything. But you'd carry a flashlight, and if you were uncertain of where the trail was, you would you would check the ribbons, and they used white chalk on the ground that would help. Um, and so I really didn't start using glow sticks on the horse until I started riding Tavis in the in the canyons when it was so dark. And um, so I do occasionally put uh, glow bars on my horse if there's not a full moon or if it's a really really dark hundred and i know riders nowadays some of them wear um their helmets with a, a light and you know i i guess people say that wearing a light on your helmet uh affects the horse's vision and i guess they've proved that not to be because many riders ride with a headlamp now so Mm-hmm. Um, I don't usually keep one going, but we just kind of go along. 
and it's it's beautiful out there under the moonlight, and so I don't like to wear glow sticks because it ruins that view out okay. there in the moon. <laughs> You're just going to step <laughs> off of the canyon wall instead. <laughs> I was going to yeah. ask if you preferred any certain color of glow stick. Um, I usually just use a, a green. The green seemed to go um, pretty well. Um, I I do remember some people putting a, a green glow stick or a glow stick on, on the rear end of the horses. Um, mm-hmm. So you could see the horse in front of you, but that really affects your vision. And many people get nauseous having to look at that all through the night. So right, right. we try and not uh, do that. But I But I sometimes do put glow bars on the breast collar on the front and, and it gives a little glow so you you yourself can see where the horse is stepping and I think it helps the horse too. Okay tell us some of the things you've learned on hundreds that you might not have learned on shorter distances. Um, you know I think riding the hundreds um, I've learned how to probably better pace mm-hmm. the horse for um, basically for soundness keeping them sound through the hundred mile and, you know, and they're pacing them for their energy levels. And so, you know, I try and um, just keep keep the horse uh, reserved as much as possible and have as much energy as at the finish as I possibly can. So that's kind of how I pace them now. I'm not quite as competitive as I used to be. And um, just like being out there, and if it takes me 24 hours, then that's great. <laughs> So what kind of traits do you specifically look for in a 100-mile horse? Um, what kind of traits? Uh, well, I like, um, I like a horse that's going to take care of himself and, and is a good eater and drinker. That's probably number one, um, one that's kind of an easy keeper. Um, he's well-balanced, and, and uh, his, his soundness has, he has good strength in his soundness and his girth and his loin that helps for strength at the for stamina for the 100 milers and you know i prefer to have a horse that that has a good walk that's always a good good quality for for your 100 mm-hmm. especially if you're in mountainous terrain mm-hmm. and how much time i know you just did 100 like three weeks ago so how much time are you going to give that horse off until uh, she does another ride um Usually I give at least two weeks um, total just uh, doing nothing. And, uh-huh. um, and then I'll, I'll start just exercising slowly during the week um, just to get them back in the groove. And I usually won't try another competition until at least 30 days after, give them a good month off. And, and I, you know, I think it depends on where your horse is at. You know, and and one that's been doing hundreds and is well seasoned probably doesn't need as much time off. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you, know, I always look to what's coming up next in their in the calendar for them, and and determine you know how much rest they're going to need. Um, and you're currently riding mares. Do you prefer mares over geldings, or did it just work out that way? Um. You know, it's worked out that way for me. I really do like the mares. There's, um, you know, you do have some temperamental things with them, and um, but they are real. My mares are really strong-willed, and they know <laughs> their job, and they want to do it. And we've had to come to some kind of agreements where <laughs> I don't have all control of them. <laughs> so they do their thing, and they they really they love their job, and 
and I try and keep them happy with doing what they like to do. And uh, the gildings, I do like gildings. I've had gildings in the past, and I do like their steadiness and, and just their reliability. And probably the next horse I get will probably be a gilding because I've had uh, the mares now for probably 20 years. So um, I'd be happy to ride a gilding again. Okay. Do you have any advice for new 100-mile riders that will help them to recover after they've done 100? Them themselves as far as yeah. um, their, their body. You know, when you ride 100, you do get sore. I, you, ride, you get sore no matter what distance you do, I always think. And it doesn't matter if it's 50 or 100, you're still going to get sore probably. And um, the 100s just give you more exhaustion because you're, you're out there so long. So, um, you know, I, I just think you're just going to rest and sleep. And, and uh, you know, I take magnesium for my muscle soreness, and I think that helps. Mm-hmm. And you, usually you're depleted with your electrolytes and your dehydration, and so you want to replenish all of that. Now, did yeah. you ever think you'd complete 73 one-day hundreds? Uh, you know, I... No, I really don't pay attention to how many um, too much. I just did what I enjoyed doing, and I've been doing them for so long, they've just accumulated. (laughs) Uh, You know, and I don't have quite the opportunity to ride as many now um, just because there's not as many sanctioned in the West region um, where we used to have quite quite a number of them, and I could do four or five a year. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm lucky to do one or two or three. Now, do so, you have any future goals for reaching any special milestones, like, you know, making 7,500s or something along those lines? Um, you know, I, no goals in my 100-milers. I, I just want to be able to continue doing them as long as I have a horse to do them and I'm physically capable of doing them. They mm-hmm. are my preferred distance, and and I really think that's what endurance is all about. Um it's that bond that you get with your horse on doing the hundreds. And uh, so, you know, I, there, there are times when you do not have a hundred mile horse ready and mm-hmm. um, you can go years without having, uh, getting a horse that that's capable of doing them. And it takes a long time to prepare them. And, but once you've got them, you know, just enjoy them because they can, they can just do them, keep on doing them every year. And, as long as you you know you take care of them. So no, no. Tell how many um, hundreds is the most hundred you've done on a single horse? Um, and that would be my mare L.S. Shireen, and I believe it was in 1988 or 89. She did seven hundreds in one year. Wow! And and that included all of the tough ones: the Race of Champions, the the Tevis Cup, uh, the World Championship the Swanton Pacific, all of them. She did, she did one just about every month. And, you know, I think that's kind of rare now with some horses, and, and probably at the time I didn't realize the horse that I had, you uh-huh. know, was so good. But, yeah, she was really exceptional. And she ended up completing 2,600-mile rides over her career. Wow, so, terrific. Well, yeah. Connie, thanks for joining us. Yes, it was a pleasure. Uh, it was fun talking to you. And um, for those listeners that are contemplating doing 100, you should go give one a try. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's mostly a mental game, so it, it psychs you out mentally. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody can do it. Well, Karen, those were some terrific interviews this morning. How interesting. Just fun to listen to. Wasn't it? Aren't they great? It's so much yeah. fun doing the show because, I mean, I'm never going to run out of really fun and interesting people to interview. Well, there are so many in the endurance world, like there is in the horse world in general, but uh, uh-huh. especially in the endurance world like that. Well, I'm going to get to meet a few of them here come tomorrow and the rest of the weekend. Uh, some of our listeners and some of my old friends from Kentucky as I head to Lexington for Road to the Horse. And another company that's going to be there is High Visibility North America is going to be there, the number one high-visibility performance sportswear range for equestrians, horses, and canines. Uh, it's called Equisafety. That is the number one in the U.K. And she's going to be set up there at Dan James Booth. So if you're looking for something in the high-visibility line, whether it's the winter coats, which are now at 50% off, and she'll have uh, those there while they last at uh, Road to the Horse at the Kentucky Horse Park this weekend. And if you're looking for something that more spring and summer-like, then just look for the vest. That's what Jennifer and I wear, the lightweight vest, when we ride and drive around the neighborhood here. Because, you know, we have a lot of seniors in our neighborhood, and they aren't seeing as well as they used to. So we make sure they can see us with these terrific vests. And they are they are form-fitted. They're made specifically for equestrians. They're not like the, the uh, construction worker ones you buy at the store. <laughs> So these are actually made for equestrians, terrific for endurance riders. You can find the entire range at HighVisibilitySportswear.com. And we are coming up next with the upcoming events, and it's brought to you by Renegade Hoof Boots. Tell us about those, Karen. That's right. Um, Renegade Hoof Boots are proudly made in the United States. They come in several different colors, and they make a strap-on boot and a glue-on boot. I mainly use the strap-on boots myself just because it's so nice and easy to be able to put a boot on when you want to use it to go ride like I just did a hundred in them. And I got up in the morning, put them on my horse. I did the hundred and took them off just like I took off the rest of Bo's tack when we finished. And now he was completely done. I didn't have to worry about his feet during the ride. He didn't have any rubs. I know there was at least one other rider that did the 100 using the Renegade strap-on boots. So they can do the distance. They're very tough and durable boots. The factory is in Arizona, and they have uh, customer service if you need help with figuring out what size you need or uh, which model, um, they've got a couple different models. If you call them and, and ask to talk to someone that can help you, they, they're happy to help you figure out how to fit and adjust your boots so that they will work for you. I've ridden thousands and thousands of miles in them, and they're a great product. And so today, uh, Renegade brings us the upcoming events. And I have, starting with a ride named Charlotte Webb, which has an intro ride, a 30, a 50, and a two-day 100 in the southeast region in Punta Guda, Florida, March 14th and 15th. Then we have Heart of the Hills, which has an intro ride, a 25, 50, and a second day 25 and 50 in the central region in Bandera, Texas. It is March 15th and 16th. Then we have Sooner State Challenge Elevator Ride in the central region in Oklahoma. It's March 14th. 
The New Mexico Desert Classic is a 2550-75-100, and it's a CEI 1, 2, and 3-star event in the southwest region in New Mexico, March 15th. Rides of March is a 3050 in the west region, Nevada, March 15th. And from the postings I've seen, the ride is now full with the waiting list. Also, there's the Cuyama Oaks XP 3055, a 2550, and a 25.50 over three days in the Pacific South region in California, March 21st through the 23rd. Red Barn Run at 2550, and a second day 2550 in the Southeast region in Georgia, March 28th and 29th. Then there's Eagle Ranch Spring Swing 1 and 2, a 2550 in the Central region in Missouri, March 29th and 30th. Shanghai Trails Central Region Championship has an intro ride, a 2550, 75, and 100, and a second day 2550 in the Central Region in Texas, March 29th and 30th. And finally, Rabbit Run, a 30 um, and a 50, and a 30 and a 50, it looks like, Northeast Region, New Jersey, March 29th. And to find out about more rides, check the AERC ride calendar at aerc.org. And you know what all that means? All of that means that all of these rides are being put on the calendar because spring is coming, everybody. Spring yes. is coming. For all of Time you in the ride. Northeast and the Central, I was looking at the Tony... Tony, one of our listeners who lives in Indiana or Illinois, I can't remember which, and he always gets mad at me because I can't remember, but uh, he was posting pictures of the snow melt and the massive flooding that they're having there right now. Uh, because of the snow melt, he posted a picture of, uh, oh, he's in Illinois. He posted pictures this morning of the road that he usually goes to work on, uh, and you can't see the road because it's just water. So right now they're wow. dealing with snow melt and all of that stuff and preparing for the next uh, storm to come across the country tomorrow and hit the Midwest and the Northeast with another six, uh, six inches to a foot of snow. So fun, fun. Uh, it'll be over soon, everybody. Look, endurance rides are being <laughs> scheduled. So it'll be over soon. Now, you might be in mud up to your horses. Uh, you might be in mud up to your knees. Uh, let alone your horses. <laughs> I know. Time to scrape the mud off of the ponies and get busy riding them. Yeah, you know, it's been very, very hard if, uh, for people who don't have the privilege and opportunity to go to a southern climate. In the winter, it's right. very, very hard. They won't be going to a lot of these uh, these competitions not having ridden all winter, a lot of them. Uh, right. You know, it was the point where in, in a lot of the northeastern states, they couldn't even put their horses out. There's so much ice uh, in the paddocks, and I remember those days, and I don't miss them at all. It's hard. But, uh, Plus, our horses have winter coats, so they're finally starting to shed, most of them anyway. Yeah, I mean, except if you live where it's really cold still. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, we are we are going to be here tomorrow. Uh, Jamie will be here. We'll be playing the EchoTMFG.com Celebrity Trivia Challenge with uh, jockey Frankie Lovato. We'll be playing tomorrow against one of our listeners. If you want to get signed up for that, just head over to HorsesInTheMorning.com and right in the middle of the page is a banner where you can go sign up. It just takes a couple seconds and you might get picked to play one of these Wednesdays against a celebrity. Also, uh, we are g not going to have really bad ads this week because I'll be coming to you, hopefully, keep my fingers crossed that technology works, the Kentucky Horse Park, I'll be coming to you live from Road to the Horse on Friday morning. So we will not have really bad ads this week, but rather next week. Get your ads in for next week. 
the Jennifer at Horse Radio Network.com. Karen, thank you so much for, for joining us again this month. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. It was great. Fun. Looking and where to can people month. find you? Where can they find all of your great articles my, and, and everything about you? My blog is karenchatton.com. I will post or repost my endurance uh, writing, writer recovery tips on my blog today for those that want to be able to see it. Okay. And it's Karen Chatton, C-H-A-T-O-N, karenchatton.com. If you want to see a great picture of her, go to renegadehoofboots.com, and you'll see her right on the cover. She's right on the homepage. That's her climbing a freaking mountain with her horse. With my renegades (laughs) on. Yes. So it's not it's not a rock, it's a freaking mountain. It's going straight up. It's like at uh, ninety degrees. <laughs> I know. It, it's um, kind of almost the highlight of the ride. It's uh it's fun to go over Cougar Rock. Okay, Highly I'll take your word for it. I'll take your word for it. Me and my cart are not going over that, I can tell you that. That looks like way too bumpy a ride for the carriage. Well, that's it, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to download our app on uh, iPhone or Android. You can uh, hop on over to the App Store and just search for Horse Radio Network. Listen to all of our different shows there. You can also follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio, and you can find all of the show notes about the different guests we had on today and all the information about them at horsesinthemorning.com. That's it, everybody. Talk to you again next month, Karen. Talk to you then. Goodbye.